0: Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Friday, July 3rd. A good day to subscribe to The Local and to share it with friends. Today, back in the day, July 3rd, 1890, our neighbor Idaho was admitted as the 43rd United State. And today, back in the day, July 3rd, 1978, the United States Supreme Court ruled 5 four the FCC had a right to reprimand radio station WBAI for broadcasting George Carlin's Filthy Words, otherwise known as his Seven Dirty Words bit.
1: That was my original list. I knew it wasn't complete, but it was a starter set, you know?
0: The case was FCC versus the Pacifica Foundation, and the decision still holds sway over the use of indecent and obscene language on television and radio. Justice Marshall, Stewart, Brennan, and White dissented. And the case is one of those that demonstrated the shift from the Warren Court to the Burger Court. And today, back in the day, 1984, July 3rd, the Supreme Court ruled the JCs may be forced to admit women as members. And five years later, on that same day, July 3rd, 1989, the United States Supreme Court ruled states do not have to provide funds for abortions. June and early July are busy days for the Supreme Court of the United States. And tomorrow, back in the day, July 4th, 1776, delegates from 13 colonies adopted the Declaration of Independence, a historic document drafted by Thomas Jefferson. Tomorrow will be a day when all of us wrestle with our nation's history, and how we continue to bend the arc of history towards justice. Today on The Local, we'll start with your quick six news headlines. We'll take an in-depth look at the history of mail-in voting with former Oregon legislator Tom Mason. Who's Tom Mason? He's not only the legislator that pushed for the legalization of brewpubs in Oregon, but also the legislator who passed the very first vote-by-mail statute in Oregon. We'll talk to him. And part one of our interview with Representative Janelle Bynum. Representative Bynum is playing a leading role in the police accountability debates in the Oregon legislature. DJ Ambush and I talk about the very special, special legislative session first up, it is today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. It's been an eventful week of protests since Rose City Justice stopped organizing their peaceful nightly marches. Mayor Ted Wheeler has asked for National Guard support. And no, protesters did not destroy the Portland elk. It's still just fine. Nor was there a ruling that the elk was racist. There were fires and graffiti around the base. And officials were concerned that damage around that base might eventually topple the elk, so they trucked it off. It was the David P. Thompson statue, by the way, a gift from Portland's mayor 120 years ago. It was the second major public art piece in Portland after the Skidmore Fountain. And after nights of particular aggressive policing, a federal judge has issued a temporary restraining order prohibiting the arrest of known journalists when police officers order protesters to clear an area. Judge Michael Simon's order, in place for two weeks, also prohibits the seizure of photography gear or press passes from journalists or legal observers. A legal observer in the order is someone wearing a green National Lawyers Guild-issued hat or a blue ACLU-issued vest. Judge Simon, by the way, is married to Congresswoman Suzanne Bonamici, and his uncle was Neil Simon, the famous playwright. It's a small town after all. Listen to the local no Portland. Meanwhile, Commissioner Joanne Hardesty wrote an open letter wanting to know exactly what it takes for a group to be declared an unlawful gathering by the police. And Oregon House Speaker Tina Kotek wrote an open letter to Mayor Ted Wheeler admonishing him for the aggressive tactics of police. Here's the quote. What needed to be protected last night? An empty office building? Was this need more important than the health of neighbors? A mask is just a mask. Oregon Governor Kate Brown and the Portland ad agency Wyden Kennedy have joined together to launch an awareness campaign. The message wear a mask. The ad campaign dubbed a mask is just a mask. It's going to appear online on social media and on outdoor signs and billboards. Brown has said the rate at which the virus spreads and the rate at which the state reopens will depend largely on the choices Oregonians make, including the choice to wear masks. In the governor's statement, she made clear that Wyden Kennedy is creating the public service announcement free of charge. You know what else the announcement said? Wear a mask. 375 new coronavirus cases on Thursday, according to the Oregon Health Authority. That brings us up to over 9,200. That's a new high record of the number of daily cases. The previous record, the day before, 281 infections. Umatilla County had 88 cases, Washington County 67 cases, Multnomah County 64 cases, 22 in Clackamas County. And in Washington State, the coronavirus has led to the hospitalization of 4,402 people, according to their health department. So let's look at the current state of Oregon's unemployment benefits. Let's start with payments. Who's actually getting their benefits? The Oregon Employment Department said it has paid out $2.5 billion in claims to an estimated 273,000 newly jobless workers since March. The department has largely worked through its backlog of regular unemployment claims. The backlog of unprocessed claims, which once numbered more than 100,000, is now at about 2,000. However... Many folks with complicated claims, the hard cases, they need to go through an adjudication process that takes several weeks before getting paid. And self-employed workers and those participating in the workshare programs, they probably won't see payment before August. So why is it taking so long to pay self-employed folks? In March, Congress created a new program called Pandemic Unemployment Assistance, or PUA. We've talked about it before a little bit. It's a federally funded program to pay jobless benefits for the self-employed and to those who don't qualify for regular benefits. So yeah, Oregon has worked through regular claims, but now it still has about 65,000 unprocessed PUA claims. And again, the department said it won't get through that backlog before the second week of August. It took the employment department about a month to get the new program up and running. It began taking applications in April, but it didn't have personnel trained to process the claims. The department says it's working with Google on a new web based PUA application system that could work more efficiently. It hopes to roll that out by the middle of this month. So that means a bunch of claims haven't even been started. And how many Workshare claims are pending? Thousands and thousands. The actual number is not clear, but it's a lot. Workshare is a state program designed to help employers retain skilled workers through temporary downturns. Workshare has also been overwhelmed during the pandemic. And the employment department doesn't know how many are waiting for their money because they have to count the number of applications by hand. Department hopes to have an estimate by next week chop or chaz is no more on wednesday in seattle dozens of officers from the seattle police department arrested more than 30 people and cleared out the capitol hill organized protest chop formerly known as the capitol hill autonomous zone chaz mayor jenny durkin of seattle directed the police to clear the area throughout the morning city crews dumped tents into garbage trucks and washed graffiti off buildings durkin's order will remain in effect for 10 days The nearby park will be closed and all people in the park and in the public rights of way will be directed to, and I'm quoting, leave the closed area immediately. And the mayor's order also authorized SPD, Seattle Police Department, to, quote, maintain a reasonable security buffer around the East Precinct and control entry into those areas in order to limit any obstruction to access, end quote. Portland has extended its contract with the police union. On Wednesday, Portland City Council voted to support a one-year extension of the rank-and-file police contract. The vote postpones a 2.9 percent cost of living adjustment until June 30th, 2021, a year from now, but it doesn't freeze wages or have any furloughs. City leaders originally aimed to have a new contract negotiated with the Portland Police Association this summer. The old contract expired on June 30th, but COVID-19 interfered with scheduled negotiating sessions. The night before the vote, protesters gathered around Portland Police Association headquarters on North Lombard Street. Despite strict orders to limit the use of tear gas, officers used the gas to disperse the crowd, and several journalists were arrested. Mayor Ted Wheeler argued on Wednesday that letting the contract expire would potentially mean less community involvement. The city had pledged that all bargaining sessions hosted by the city would be public. No agreement would mean the parties could go into a confidential mediation. Commissioners are arguing the one-year delay will allow for more public involvement. Critics say it might mean that the current level of unrest has been quelled and maybe there won't be as much energy for transforming the contract. According to an agreement, bargaining will restart January 13th, 2021, when parties are hoping to be able to meet face-to-face, pandemic permitting. And some good news for library lovers and dilatory payers. No more late fees. On Wednesday, the Multnomah County Library announced that will no longer charge late fees on library materials effective immediately. it also clear all existing fines, restore access to accounts that have been blocked because of late fees, and it is removing fine debt for more than 72,000 accounts. That's a total of more than $730,000 in late fees. By the way, if you do the arithmetic, that's like just a little more than $10 bucks a person. The library and the post office, they're like two of the biggest bargains there are. That said, more than 2,000 people have had accounts blocked due to fines of more than 50 bucks. Patrons will continue to be billed if something is not returned at all. So you don't just get to keep the book. The materials will still have due dates and will automatically renew if not returned within the checkout period. After 49 days, the patron will be charged replacement cost. Once returned, the charges will be cleared. By the way, if you thought you were the only one, in its last fiscal year, the library collected about 550,000 in overdue fines. That still is less than 1% of its annual budget. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray.
2: Oregon was the first state in the United States to implement mail-in voting. Here are Jefferson Smith and former Oregon legislator Tom Mason on the history of mail-in voting.
0: Tom Mason, good morning. Good morning to you. Thanks for being with us. First of all, give a little more background on your experience in the Oregon legislature, etc. How long did you serve? Give people sort of the story.
1: Well, I served 16 years, from uh, 1979 to uh, '93, I think it was. Um, I eventually uh, quit for health reasons. The voters got sick and tired of me. But um, anyway, (laughs) uh, that's another story. But what you want is the story of vote by mail. Uh, It was started in 1981. I introduced the bill in 1981 for vote by mail, uh, allowing it in special elections, and that was the start of it. The idea came from uh, Multnomah County elections officials, Vicki Irwin and Bill Berdakovich. Uh, Vicki was a friend of mine, and she had the idea of, of a vote by mail. And so we introduced the bill. Uh, I, I was the chief sponsor of the bill. Uh, Peter Courtney who was still there, also was a sponsor for it. It was an interesting experience too, because we got some uh, opposition from, uh, sometimes weird opposition, uh, the 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 biggest opposition came from the Oregon Education Association, oddly enough, because they had been winning a lot of a uh, 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 you know special elections uh, with a very very low voter turnout, and they thought if they had low low voter turnout, they would uh, be losing these special elections. Well, uh, the bill was uh, it was kind of unique and attractive, and and it it passed, and we uh, it, it also got some uh, opposition from some of the women's groups in the sense that they thought that. That uh, men would dominate their their wives sitting at the kitchen table. I don't think that's happened at all. Of uh, 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 I think that's proved not to be the case. But it it was an idea that that, that caught fire and it it worked. And then pretty soon, uh, uh, it went it went statewide with Phil Kiesling. and uh, it, that that was the kind of genesis of vote by mail. Let's
0: stick back there a little bit. Say more about Vicki Irwin. How did you connect with Vicki Irwin? Say more about who she was and how you all got in touch in the first place.
1: Uh, Vicki Irwin was number two in Multnomah County elections, a very capable woman, and we were, we were just personal friends, and we actually had several, uh, I was on the elections committee, and we had several you uh, know innovative uh, bills back then. We had a thing, one other bill, we had a thing called the submarine ballot, in which you could send a, a, literally for, for people that were in the Navy, you could send a very, very, very early ballot to them uh, it was designed for designed for people that were literally in nuclear submarines. You could send an early ballot to them, and it would still be accepted. Uh, we also had a, a thing, that, a bill that that uh, allowed them not to have to count Mickey Mouse on write-in ballot, right in uh, uh, in ballots when somebody would, would write Mickey Mouse in. It just saved a lot of time for them. But uh, Vicki and I worked very closely on some innovative uh, elections uh, law that that time and uh that was one of my kind of uh areas especially when i was in the legislature was was elections the other area especially was criminal justice because i i chaired the the uh, judiciary committee for several years all year and uh, was very involved with on on that on that side there's some other stories
0: so the submarine ballot the submarine ballot was a precursor vote by mail or another matter entirely
1: i don't know if it was a precursor or another matter um we had a whole series of innovative bills. Gets, this was in, in the 80s, so it gets a little dim. But uh, there, were, there were things to make, to make elections easier and more convenient, and that was the whole idea of, of vote-by-mail. Let me say uh, something about this national controversy that I, that I hear, and of course it's extremely ironic when I hear the national controversy. Uh, some of it is just utter nonsense. Uh, vote by mail has been very, very efficient. There's been hardly any, just no, really, essentially no fraud at all, and it, it works. It works very, very well. And uh, Oregonians here are so, so uh, used to it that that uh, there's no question that we're going to continue with it, and it would actually be, should be extended nationally. Uh, so I, I think it's the opposition to it is, is purely political.
0: And that first proposal, where did it institute? The vote by mail system. You said it wasn't yet statewide. Where was it?
1: Uh, this would be uh, the the first bill allowed uh, vote by mail in in, in local special elections, uh, and the, that was the start of it. That was that was that was the the kind of camel's nose under the under the uh, the, the tent. And then I'm, I'm 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 a little foggy on 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 the uh, uh, what what the next step was because I left Oregon for about 20 years and moved to, moved my law practice to California. And uh, I think Phil, Teese, Phil Keesling was the one that took it statewide for statewide elections. Now, of course, it's for all elections, all Oregon elections.
0: So the first, uh, and you're saying, what session was it? 1981 session?
1: 1981.
0: 1981 uh, session. It starts a sort of pilot project. It starts as something that's just in special elections, and then right. and then later it gets picked up. I, and I remember, you know, my very first. Uh, my very first vote was the last, uh, the last election in Oregon that wasn't all vote by mail. So I still had to go and you know uh, stand in line and, and vote in person for the very first time. I got to cast a uh, cast a ballot, uh, but it was right in the right in the transition in the nineties.
1: That's uh, correct. Let me say that, that uh, you know you look back at I'm I'm uh, retired now. You look back to your career. The only other thing I ever accomplished in the Oregon legislature was uh, was uh, brew pubs in 1985, which created the whole industry. So I'm still very proud of that one too.
0: I wanted to ask you about brew pubs. There's actually an old article in the in the Willamette Week about, uh, uh, but not all that old. I think back in 2017. Uh, I wanted I wanted to ask you about that. Let's hold on just just one second, because I wanted to ask you about the opposition. You said the Oregon Education Association uh, was resistant to vote by mail initially. Explain that.
1: Well, again, they, they were winning special elections, uh, uh, special uh, uh, levies uh, to support schools on very very low turnout, and uh, they would, the, the PTAs and the uh, the people that supported the OEA. Would uh, get their voters out, and they were winning special <laughs> elections. And they thought that that if uh, with vote by mail, which would increase t- turnout tremendously, that they would start losing elections. I don't think that's been the case at all. I don't think that has been the case at all. And I and I, they they of course do not oppose vote by mail now, as far as I know. I, I don't know why they would, but they would, they would. I would imagine they would support it vigorously now because it increases turnout, and increased turnout you get increased Democratic turnout, and increased Democratic turnout you usually get. Some bigger support for education. I don't want to get too political. But,
0: yeah. How'd you overcome the opposition? What, what what did it take to get the bill through the House, through the Senate, and signed by the governor?
1: Well, it, it the the opposition was 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 not was not vehement. Uh, it was not it was not on on. Although OEA opposed it, it was not a big deal for them. They weren't gonna gonna pull their support for your future election if you if you supported the bill. And we, there was a lot of explanation. That that it was just something innovative and it was something that needed to be done, and on, and on top of it, uh, to give credit also to Vicky, Vicky uh, w- who lobbied for the elections, the Multnomah County elections at that time, was a very was a very very popular lobbyist down there, so uh, I think her good she had a lot more goodwill than I did, so it was just a matter of of, of 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 peeling off votes one by one, and and there's also a spirit in Oregon. This is something unique to Oregon. Uh, that the that, that Oregonians, and especially political Oregonians, like innovative things. They like to be the first of doing something, whether it be free beaches or, or bottle deposits. It's kind of the Tom McCall tradition. And if, it, if it's a first, the, the people people kind of like that idea. That's one of those Oregon unique things.
0: Well, Tom Mason, thank you so much for spending the time and taking us back in the day about the origins of two of the ways we define our state. One of them is that we get a vote by mail, and the other is we got brew pubs. We've got brew pubs.
1: I'll tell you one one final thing. You know, I'll go into a brew pub today, and, and inevitably, uh, my wife hates this. I'll tell this story of how I started the whole industry, and uh, the reaction of the bartender is always the same. Thank you, Mister Mason, but you still got to pay for your beer. <laughs> well, thank you, Mister Mason, and thanks for being on X Ray. Yeah, you still got to pay for your beer. Have a good day. You too.
2: As we heard from Tom Mason, 1981 brought a groundbreaking mail-in voting policy. What does bold policy look like in 2020? Here's DJ Ambush and Jefferson Smith with Representative Janelle Bynum with her insights on the recent 2020 special session. This is part one of our interview with Representative Bynum. Tune in Monday for part two. Hello everyone, I am DJ Ambush with the numbers and X-Ray FM. Representative Janelle Bynum represents House District 51, which includes southern Multnomah and northern Clackamas counties. Representative Bynum joined the Oregon House in 2016.
0: And I'm Jefferson Smith, and I'm with Ambush. Representative Bynum is a leader in the POC caucus in the legislature and the co-chair of the Joint Committee on Transparent Policing and Use of Force Reform. That's a bunch of words. We'll talk about what that means, and she's with us today to talk about that special session that just happened and what more is to come.
2: Thank you for joining us. How are you feeling today? I'm feeling, I got a lot of adrenaline running through
0: my blood here. How come? What's causing the adrenaline?
2: Um, You know, we're not only um, dealing with police reform, we're also um, working on getting direct relief to African American communities. Um, I'm also mothering (laughs) and um, (laughs) looking at all the things my kids are leaving around the house. And so there's, you know, there's that. And then um, My husband and I are still business owners, and so we're trying to make sure we take care of our employees and our customers. So there are a lot of balls in the air. What adjustments have you you had to make in that respect as business owners? Is that McDonald's franchise, I believe? Right. Um, You know, it's really interesting. We haven't had to make a lot of adjustments because we've always been a people-first organization. We recognize that many of the restaurants across the country um, employ black and brown people. So our policies have been centered on um, ensuring the dignity of our workers. Um, That is one of the reasons that I got into the legislature and that I got into politics was because sometimes you can be a part of a a larger organization and people start drinking the Kool-Aid and they Mm. forget that They're just one generation out of the cotton fields, right? So I've had to remind some of of my colleagues that, uh, for instance, on um, paid family leave, um, there's no reason for us to oppose that. These were our mothers and grandmothers just a generation ago. So we look in our kitchens and we see who's there.
0: Mm. It's
2: black and brown women.
0: Mm. Representative Biden maybe jumping ahead a little or maybe a lot, or maybe jumping back a little or maybe a lot. Is it time? I noticed that California just passed a bill to at least take an initial explore, an initial exploratory step towards, towards actual reparations. Is that something that the state of Oregon I mean, should start seriously exploring now?
2: i was advised to read nicole hannah jones's article in the uh, new york times i think the weekend edition um, where she laid out a very clear case for that i think what you can look at is uh, we were just having a conversation about this yesterday this idea of race neutrality in our policies and i push back on that and say there's no such thing as race neutrality um you know we were advocating for the oregon cares fund And any time that you put a specific group um, label on money, you have to be able to justify its narrow purpose. And so, um, you know, in, in making the case for this, I'm saying that in this country, when you're allocating money or resources, when you're doing anything, the default is white. And it rarely gets to us. It rarely, the money, the... The positive things rarely get to us and the negative things always find their way to us. So um, so I have more reading to do. Um, I can't answer your question directly, but what I view my job is, is to untangle that web of um, policies and practices and thoughts that continue to ensnare us um, disproportionately in the criminal justice system, continue to deny us economic justice and really have put us back four hundred years um, so that you know essentially we could never catch up.
0: R- Rukai Adams, I know we all know, mm-hmm. gave her TEDx talk and did their arithmetic on the aggregate wealth in the black community, the African-American community uh, around, you know, post-Civil War time and compared it to now. And when you look at the backdrop of loans being allowed, house subsidies, Mm -hmm. et cetera, you know, reading the color of law, et cetera, recognizing that there are so many white Americans who were born into six figures worth of wealth. And so many black Americans who are dealing with uh, social negative
2: wealth. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it's, it is, um, it is fascinating. It is absolutely fascinating what, um, coming out of college, for instance, with no debt can do for your career. Um, it's, it's very interesting to, you know, be able to be a working professional and not have to send money home to your family. There's also, um, You know, sometimes when I'm in the Judiciary Committee, I often talk about the fact that we are transferring wealth out of the black community into rural counties. Because we're sending able bodied people to be housed in our prisons, who would otherwise be gainfully employed were it not for certain choices and circumstances. Um, And every one of those people. Is, is the loss of wealth in our community. And so as we talk about, um, you know, adjusting in our, in our upcoming budget, uh, you know, I say I, I don't really have a lot of sympathy for um, the the larger question of job losses as it relates to prison. I have sympathy for those people whose families depend on that. I certainly have sympathy there but the amount of wealth that is being transferred out of the black community and brown communities in particular um, is, is staggering. And um, it's, one more, it's one more piece of the puzzle when you talk about generational wealth or, or the lack of it. How do you feel about the possibilities uh, for change in this moment? Um, as, as a person in public service, I'm ever the optimist. Mm -hmm. Um, I I get a little cautious when I see things, um, for instance, like the Black Lives Matter protests being co-opted by people with other interests, Um, outside agitators coming in. One of the things that, you know, has me thinking this morning is the whole issue with the press and how the press now feels targeted or they feel like they are victims in this fight as well. And the moment they become victims and no longer attempting to be impartial observers, they will miss things. So I worry about that. Um, I I worry.
0: What do you worry they'll miss?
2: They will see their own um, hurt And they'll miss that perhaps it was not a person with the true mission of advancing the Black Lives Matter cause, um, an agitator um, doing something in the crowd that will trigger the police. That's what they could miss. What's the
0: the highest priority for you? Just bouncing off Ambush's question what's the highest or one of the highest priorities or priority number of priorities in your mind to advance the black lives matter cause.
2: I'm all about intergenerational wealth, pure and simple. So it means that our children are educated, meaning that we are no longer um, okay with 70% of our black kids graduating from Oregon high schools. Um, we're, we're no longer okay with the amount of debt college students are incurring. We're no longer okay with the amount of incarceration of our Black men and our boys. Um, what has recently entered um, the forefront of my mind is disproportionate discipline in schools, which is where we see the school to prison pipeline. Um, and really in this moment, what, what growth can we um, experience through the COVID conversation? about how we access health care.
0: And bring it back to Oregon. The uh, there was this the idea to shift investigations from district attorney's offices, district attorneys have such a close relationship to police officers. Police officers are almost my dad was a D.A., right? He said his police officers were basically his clients and then being asked to investigate his own clients. It's a pretty hard thing to expect them to do. And the proposal was to shift that to the attorney general's office. The attorney general would be down to do it. They'd want the resources to do it. They'd want the you know investigative staff and the money. Uh, and you on the Portland uh, Forward call, the PDX Forward call uh, meeting, you know, other night, said well you weren't sure the attorney general's office was the best place for it. If it's not the DA's office or if it's not the attorney general's office, where should it go? How should those investigations of police use of force cases, use of deadly force cases, where should those happen?
2: So I don't really care about the where. I care about the who. And the state has yet to develop a core of civil rights attorneys who will follow up on cases and get outcomes The state has not invested in boley. You saw that with the Michael Fesser outcome. He went Mm -hmm. to Boley. Our civil rights division there was decimated. So if the state hasn't invested in the most basic of places, what gives me confidence that just transferring jurisdiction from one place to another, another state agency, that I'm going to get any different results?
0: So I
2: don't care
0: about the where. It it sounds insufficient, right? It it just just shifting the where doesn't sound like enough. But I also I still wonder if it's necessary. I guess advocates wonder if it's necessary that are you going to get pretty? I mean, maybe you know you elect you can elect a Mike Schmidt in Multnomah County, but you're not doing that in 36 out of 36 Oregon counties to to elect that kind of that kind of person to the district attorney's office. So I'm not going to get
2: that answer in a week.
0: Yeah. OK, well, I mean, going forward, though, in this in the next round, like I totally understand why you needed to give it some thought. Right. To be able to say, hey, are you actually gonna be able to hire these lawyers or whether whether at the Bureau of Labor and Industries, whether they're the Attorney General's office, the, the Oregon uh, Department of Justice, wherever they are, are you actually going to get the money and get these lawyers and train them up who will be committed? That's like that is totally fair And to be clear. Like, I think there should be huge applause personally. And I recognize I'm offering an opinion here, but uh, huge applause for all the work. I mean, y'all did historic work in a short period of time, and I think all of you acknowledged that there's more work to do, right? And and in, in, after the session, and so we're what I'm sort of wondering is what's that next piece, right? What what do you need advocates when people are showing up to the legislature to testify? What are you wanting to hear, right? Or who are you wanting to hear from? What are the key questions they need to be engaging with?
2: So what I have proposed is um, these are the potential concepts that I wanted to cover. And I'm going to cheat off my little sheet here, OK? To close the loopholes on arbitration, the bill that was 1604, um, there were uh, people that wrote in that said, this isn't strong enough. OK, Senator Frederick wanted that bill to pass as he had passed it so that he could get that and check that off the list, incremental progress. The second was use of force, banning chokeholds, ensuring the, um, the health and safety of anyone that you've arrested or is in your uh, custody. The third is peaceful protest, um, uh, banning the use of tear gas and understanding what the range of non-lethal mun- munitions looks like and deciding as a community whether we want to continue that whole um, range of choices. Um, we needed to close up the duty to intervene and establish what the responsibilities of supervisors was, because we didn't get that. Uh, there's a piece in the Colorado bill, I think it's SB 20-217, which authorizes the attorney general to investigate uh, patterns and practices of discrimination and disparate outcomes. There's a, there's a piece in that bill that I think is just beautiful legislation that helps us look at an agency level. Right now, we have no ability to look at agencies that are um, mistreating people. The next one was um, community policing and independent review boards. Um, You know, exploring that concept, uh, giving independent police review boards teeth um, and all the tools that they would need. The demilitarization of police, including their uniforms and, and training practices looking at number seven was hiring practices and standards, looking at statewide site standards and polygraphs, and then the next was um, how we use um, and recruit reserve officers. So that was the initial list of open items that we felt like we had um, pretty exhaustive, but we're going to start hearings next week to get a baseline of information. How aggressive does that sound?
0: It sounds hugely helpful and and a really useful list. Ambush, what's your thought? No, I was going to say that was that was the playbook. That was it. That was perfect. Thanks to Tom Mason and Representative Janelle Bynum for joining the local. And a big thanks to our production team. Editing Wizardry by Will Romey. Writers DJ Ambush, Casey Colton, Kate K, Julia Oppenheimer, Joy Palchik, Miranda Sellinger. writers Sherwood, and Jamie Zangle, and co-executive producer Emily Gilliland, and I'm Jefferson Smith. Thank you for original journalism and research by the Lund Report, Oregon Health Authority, COVID-19.healthdata.org, the Oregon Historical Society, the Oregon Encyclopedia, Portland Business Journal, Lamont Week, Pamplin Media, OPB, The Oregonian, the Statesman Journal, Bike Portland, Eater, KTVZ, Street Roots, Coin, and News Partners, Bridgeliner, and the Portland Mercury. And thank you for listening to Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Please do rate and review. Please give it five stars. Five stars, please. And subscribe and spread the word. Thank you, democracy. Talk to you on Monday. X-Ray.